Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today we're going to talk about how crazy work is and what to do about it. So let me just ask you, how many times have you said, when somebody said what's going on at work, you say work is crazy? I have to admit, I've become guilty of that as well. Uh, And I think I'm going to change based on our guest today. But think about it, how many other people you know that who think that crazy busy is the only option? And how many people seem to think that there's a badge of honor about how busy you are at work? I certainly see an awful lot of that. Well, how about if we say it doesn't have to be that way? So my guest today is David Heinemeyer Hansen. David is um, co-founder and CTO of Basecamp. He's the creator of Ruby on Rails. He's a best-selling author, and he's a Le Mans class-winning racing driver, plus being a frequent podcast guest and a family man. And just if you don't know what any of those are, Basecamp is a saner, organized ways to manage projects and communicate company-wide. He, David runs us with his business partner, Jason Freed, and a team of some 50 programmers, designers, supporters, and all sorts of people. Ruby on Rails is an open source web framework that's optimized for programmer happiness and beautiful code. And hundreds of thousands of programmers use this, and it's uh, the basis for a um, variety of companies like GitHub, Square, Airbnb, Kickstarter, Goodreads. All right. It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work is David's latest book, co-authored with Jason Freed, and it's about how to run a calm company. And I'll also give you the heads up. There are several other fabulous books, but today, it doesn't have to be crazy at work. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I am excited about this because I think this is an important topic. So let me start at the beginning. Why did you write this book? I think you hit on it right in the opening that when Jason and I would talk to people about how is work, the number one answer I'd actually say is that it's crazy. And not just that it's crazy at work, but it's crazy with a smile. That people are happy about the fact that it's crazy at work, or at least they're um, radiant about the fact that they're so busy, that they're so needed, and isn't that a good thing? And our reaction to that was, no, why is that a good thing? Why is it good that it's crazy at work? Um, We were trying to square that with our own experience of running the software company Basecamp for the last 20 years and not feeling like uh, it was crazy all the time and that it had to be crazy or that we weren't doing enough if it wasn't crazy. So we wanted to tell our story and to give a counterpoint, a counter melody to the hustle culture that's currently permutating all over American business. Um, We saw it especially from tech companies, from startups, but I think unfortunately what's happened is as as tech has grown bigger and bigger and the biggest companies are all tech companies, uh, the rest of the business world are looking to technology for insight. They're looking to how should we work? How should we structure things? So technology really gets to set the tone in a lot of um, discussions about how work should be done. And I think, unfortunately, tech is setting the entirely wrong tone 
when it comes to how long we should work and how we should work. And it's sort of ironic that uh, this is coming out of technology, a industry that's otherwise so focused on metrics and science and um, sort of proper ways of evaluating what we do, uh, whether it's the engagement metrics that's driving uh, ad revenue with Facebook or, or any of these other aspects of, of the tech industry, they're usually all about the, the metrics. When it comes to this, I find that the technology's focus on it being crazy, on the glory of working 60, 70, 80 hours a week um, is completely not only unscientific, unsupported, it flies straight in the face of everything we know about how to uh, cultivate creative, happy, sustainable work practices that uh, can get the best out of uh, everyone. So we wanted to give our, um, our counter to that, explain how we work, and explain the fact that you can have success without going crazy at work, and that uh, people are happier if, if, if they're not, that calm should actually be what we should be striving for, and crazy should be something we are apologizing for. <laughs> I love that. Calm is what we strive for, and we apologize for crazy. I love that. Okay, so I can't help but ask, how does it work at Basecamp if you do it so differently? And for the record, Basecamp is profitable, has been highly profitable for 20 years. It's a widely used platform if people don't know about it. So it's a substantial, viable business, yes? Absolutely. And I think that that's actually the first point we usually have to argue against. When we say, you don't have to work 80 hours a week, uh, a counter we often hear is, well, that's fine. That's because you run a lifestyle business, which is usually always set with this uh, demeaning tone that lifestyle businesses are not real businesses. Or if you're running a business and also want a lifestyle, somehow you're doing it wrong. I think the premise of that whole thing is just uh, crazy. Um, but the, the fact is we've been running this company, 50-some employees, for uh, 20 years, making multimillion-dollar profits every year, um, plenty, enough, right? Why should we be trading any of that away, any of the calm away to strive for, for more? I think there's this very unhealthy obsession, uh, especially coming out of the tech company, and, and as I said, uh, with many of these other themes, it's infecting the rest of the industry, or the rest of work culture, is that we should all be striving to be the biggest, meanest thing we can possibly be. In technology, that's often uh, termed unicorns. The tech startups, they have to be worth a billion dollars and become a unicorn for them to be seen as a success. Um, that's another thing we just try to push back again. And You don't have to be worth a billion dollars to do good work, to have an impact on society, to be uh, kind to your coworkers and fair to your customers. You can do so with much less. And in fact, the vast majority of the economy, both in the U.S. And, and around the world, does not consist just of these mega behemoths. In fact, they consist of the Fortune 5 million, the many, many companies that are far smaller than a billion dollars, yet employs the majority of people in the world. So we have a bit of a myopic focus, in my opinion, on just what are these big companies do? What does the Apple of the world, the Facebook of the world, the Googles of the world, what do they do? Well, I'm not really that interesting. I think there's far more interesting stories than what do the Fortune 5 million do? And, and we're trying to put one of those stories out there and say, this is a distinct alternative. We're not just all striving to become the next Google. Some of us actually find that small is not a stepping stone. Small is where we want to be or medium size is where we want to be. And it's enough that 50 people making millions of dollars a year what more could you want? Uh, it's fine to say this is it for us and we're happy where we are. 
that sounds almost heretical in today's business world of growth, 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 quarter, 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 shareholder returns, under returns, on returns, and how big can we be? Before I take a dive in that one, though, I have to tell you an interesting story. A few years ago, I was trying to figure out just how many people are actually employed in a Fortune 500 in the U.S., and this was the only place I could collect data on it, so I'm looking at the U.S., The best estimate I got at the end of the day is it's less than 13% of the employed population in the U.S. that works for Fortune 500 companies. That leaves a lot of other people, like 87% of the rest of employees, working for small to mid-sized companies. So I think you're right that there's a lot of good business and a lot of good work being done outside of the behemoths. Absolutely. And I think that that's just... uh where we should try to draw some of our lessons from too, that it's not just us looking for the next cover story of fortune magazine about, Oh, what did this huge company do? And let's all scribble down all their peculiar policies and try to emulate those. In fact, I think uh, it's the other way around a lot of the times that is the big companies that need to emulate how the small ones are operating to, to bring some of that calm back into the workplace. Okay. All right. So how do you get, so first off, give me the argument. Why is calm a good thing? So I think calm is a good thing, first and foremost, on the human side, that we spend um, an extraordinary amount of time working. And then that time is an extraordinary uh, slice of our lives. If we're not spending an extraordinary slice of our lives in calm operations, in fact, if we're spending that extraordinary slice where it's crazy all the time. What are we doing? What is the purpose of all this? Uh, One anecdote that comes to mind for me was uh, Marissa Mayer, who was one of the early Google executives and became the CEO of Yahoo, once bragged in a a glossy interview about the fact that uh, when Google first got off the ground, she was working 120 hours a week. And the way she could do this was by being strategic with her bathroom breaks. That was one of the quotes from the article. And I read that, and I went, this is bananas. If you had talked to Egyptian slaves putting together the pyramids and um, heard that they were working 120 hours a week and people were, were managing their bathroom breaks, you would have gone, what an absolutely horrid life that is. And here we're looking at one of the most successful executives in American business expose that as though that's some sort of virtue, that she should have accolades for the fact that she basically treated herself as a slave to the business. What kind of life is that? And I think we have the entirely wrong premise for what is success when a glossy interview with Marissa Mayer can just casually throw out, oh, I work 120 hours a week. I mean, do the math of just how much of the day that is. And we look (laughs) up to that. We look up to that as though that's aspirational rather than pathological. Uh, I think that's... um, in, in, the, in the sense of, of what crazy is, that it's, it's almost a kind of mental illness. And I think that, that um, we need to turn that whole thing around. We need to approach work far more from a humanistic uh, perspective where we put the human in the center. And the human is not just work. But there's so much more to a happy, fulfilled life than just how many hours you can put in in the office. So we have to start there, that we're doing this because we want people to live happy, healthy lives, where work is one important component, but it isn't the all-dominating, all-conquering part of it that everything else must yield to. And 
we're particularly passionate about this, Jason and I, because we run our own business. No one else gets to tell us how we should work. And when we looked at designing our company and how we should work, um, we looked at, at that whole picture. How can we live this whole fulfilled life? We want to be working for the, we've been working for 20 years. We'd like to work for another 20 years. That's 40 years of our lives. Hey, let's set that up in a calm way so that we can look back at that at the end of those 40 years, at the end of a 40-year career and said, I wasn't just at the office. I lived a fuller life than that. Right. So what so many of us say, but then we get right back into the treadmill. So why is it that you think we've all bought into the craziness that you're right to say that 120 hours a week is aspirational is ridiculous. We know from medical science that physicians, if they work 80 hours a week, make mistakes that cost people's lives. We know from every other science we ever have about human performance is that, you know, you can't work that many hours and do a good job. Um, And you quote Henry Ford about, you know, there was a reason we went to 40 hours a week. You want to tell us that story? Yeah. So I think what's so funny about this is, uh, as I said in the beginning, just how anti-scientific it is, that there's a long history of evaluating work practices and what's actually most effective. How do you get the peak performance out of workers? And Henry Ford, when he was putting together the original assembly line for the Model T, realized that if he was forcing his assembly line workers to work more than 40 hours a week, it was just bad business. He ended up having people who made mistakes and cars that came out with defects that then had to be repaired, and most businesses are like that. If you have people making mistakes, shipping it to customers, either whether that's software, it's a service, or it's anything else, it'll end up costing you far more than just doing the good work the first time around. And I think that that equation is often just completely disregarded when we think of, well, if I just work twice as many hours, I can get twice as much done. That is absolutely not true not just on the mere quantity of it. Can you actually produce double the amount of work in double the amount of time? No. But secondly, and more importantly, on the quality of that work, that the majority of office workers today, they're not just doing uh, manual labor where they're, they're stamping out things and if they can produce twice as many widgets, they're twice as valuable. No, they're being employed for their creativity, their insight, and their care in the work. And those things all just plummet when we um, don't have the rest, when we don't have the downtime. I think the, the fact that we've regressed to this point, that we now have to argue as though it's, that that's the crazy part, that working 80 hours a day should be the upper limit, I think it's just a sad reflection of how wins as a society can slide backwards and things we took for granted that even a hardened capitalist like Henry Ford would have gone like, well, yeah, working more than 30 hours a week just doesn't make any sense. And here we are um, (laughs) half a century later and the most esteemed executives of American business are saying, no, 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 actually you can work three times as much of that uh, as that if you're just careful with your bathroom breaks and all will be hunky-dory. That's just tragic. (laughs) So, David, I'm going to ask you in a minute too, so what does that mean we do about that one? But why? I mean, you've said that you think the tech industry is sort of driving this a bit, but how is, how is it that we got to a place where we think 80 hours a week is a good thing, or 120 if you're a Mercer Meyer? I think a 
big part of this is how uh, work for a lot of people, and particularly in the tech industry, has become the sole source of meaning in their life. And if it is the sole source of meaning and where they're deriving all their identity and sense of self-worth, um, then the equation somehow, I guess, makes sense that you should just try to pour in everything that you possibly have because, oh, also, by the way, we're saving the world, right? I think that's the other thing. If you go back to Marissa Mayer's company, Google, one of their founding principles was do no evil. And what have we ended up with today? A behemoth that sells a, a vast amount of invasive advertising based on tracking people and exploiting their privacy. And in the process has destroyed such societally beneficial industries as the newspapers. And you look back, actually, wait a minute, was, was that the meaning of, of everything? Was, was this just a true good where every hour you invested in that just going to come back many fold to society? I think that's thankfully some of the skepticism that's starting now that maybe we shouldn't take all our lessons on how to work or uh, what's a good life or what's good striving for from the tech industry that the, uh, the masks have fallen a little bit and the previously high-flying companies like Google and Facebook are finally coming under the deserved scrutiny. But I think there's also just a lag. It didn't take us two years to get into this um, screwed-up notion that pouring in as many hours as you can at work was, was beneficial, and it's not going to take us two years to get out of it either. We have to start the deprogramming now if we want to see a material change in the next 10 years. I think mean, that's one of those things that's actually fascinating on the societal planes. Um, there is an endless amount of articles coming out about how lazy millennials are and how they're not willing to put in the hours and, and doing all these things. Whenever I read one of those articles, I go, good, that's great. We should have some change here. We need an absolutely fundamental reset. And maybe some of that reset is going to be a generational reset where the New generation coming into the labor market simply goes, do you know what? That's not my vision of a good life, to pour in 80 or 120 hours a week such that I can uh, make people watch more ads. I think we're finally developing a healthy level of skepticism and, and scrutiny over, for, over those ideals. And, and maybe that's what's going to turn things around. I heard someone recently say that about millennials that if you survey millennials, you know, the things that they want, reasonable hours of work and some feedback and some positive acknowledgement, you know, all the normal things. And if you sur- survey Gen X or baby boomers, they want the same thing. The only difference is yes. the non-millennials have learned to settle for not having it. And, and the millennials the, haven't exactly. learned. Maybe we shouldn't teach them either. Absolutely. And I think that that is the the sad part of this. I don't think most people grow up thinking, oh, what I really want out of life is to live inside a cubicle all of my waking hours and spend uh, as little time as I possibly can on anything else and, and not sleep enough just so that I can go back into my cubicle and do more work. It is just such a dystopian notion of what success is. And, and the real tragedy is that it, it's coming from within. Um, where you could look back on earlier ages of, of work and you could say, oh, my boss is forcing me to do this. No, bosses have now figured out that it's far more effective to convince people themselves that this is a good thing, that the boss is not telling them they have to stay and work 80 hours a week. No, this is just implied that that's what you need to do 
do good work. And who doesn't want to do good work? And who, who doesn't want to keep up with their team? It's really insidious in, in a way where we end up programming people against their own best interests um, to pursue this utter madness. Yeah, I'm now convinced that this is craziness that we've developed, and I'm really curious about how it is that we have everybody thinking that that working so hard is good. I know some of the phenomena I see in large corporations, so in the Fortune 500 and the FTSE 250, is there's been so much delayering, and people are now doing the equivalent of three jobs. It's not that we stopped work. We're just asking people to carry much more of the burden. And I also think some of our performance management systems are making it harder for people to say no or set some boundary or limits. Otherwise, they end up being in the bottom 10 or 20% of the population with no bonus pay and not rated very well and out of a job. So there are some other structures that are, that are fueling this craziness along the way. So tell us about Basecamp. Um, what what's it like at Basecamp working there? So when we talk about hours, for example, our philosophy is simply that 40 hours a week is plenty and eight hours a day is enough. In fact, when I look back on my 20 years working for the company, it is a rare day where I even get eight hours of productive work out of it. If I get a good uh, four hours of super creative, in-depth, deep work, that is a good day. And you can make an astounding amount of progress if you work like that. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't spend eight hours actually moving the needle. They spend eight hours on shallow work, running from meeting to meeting, constantly getting interrupted and ending up with 45 minutes here or an hour and a half there to do the deep work that doesn't take 45 minutes. No, it takes two hours, three hours, four hours to really get into it and get to the bottom of things. And I think you can quickly convince yourself that you're working really hard when you're just running around in circles. And we've looked at it and said, we're not interested in running around in circles. So take meetings, for example. We've banished the status meeting uh, a long time ago. No meeting where we pull five people into a room where they go one after another and just tell everyone else what they've been working on for the past week. That is just an other waste of time. And the meeting is the wrong tool to convey that kind of information. What we do instead for status updates, for example, is that everyone just writes up asynchronously in a log that we keep on Basecamp to tell the rest of the company what they've been working on. And people can consume that or not at their leisure. Uh, I think the toxicity of of meetings as a um, um, sort of a sham for actually working is uh, is great, and we've tried to eliminate uh, much of that. And, of course, it helps, too. We're a remote company, so we can't just pull everyone into a conference room most of the time and, and, and pretend that we are doing that work. But um, what we've really learned is that it's not just the number of hours. It's the quality of those hours. And the quality of an hour is not created equal. You cannot slice up an hour into four little parts and then expect that those four little parts is going to add up to a quality hour. It doesn't work like that. And I think everyone really knows that. They know that the time to get work done at work is not in the peak of the day where they're getting pulled into meetings, they're going to pull the side. A lot of people sit with the sense that if they really have to get something done, maybe they have to show up really early in the morning before everyone is there, or they have to stay late at night until everyone else has gone home, or they have to catch a sick day, or they have to be on a plane where there's no internet 
or they have to be free from these other distractions. Why is that the exception? Why is it the exception that the work can't get done at work? That should be the normal part. It should be the normal thing that work happens at work. But um, I think, unfortunately, that's not the, the case for a lot of people. Now, we use a bunch of different techniques to, to get to that. One thing around um, meetings, for example, is that we don't play calendar Tetris. At Basecamp, there are no shared calendars. No one can just go in and look at David's calendar and say, oh, there's a two-hour block open on Tuesday from 11 to 1 p.m. Let me just plop in my green block here, and I'll take his time. We don't allow that. There are no shared calendars, and if you want to schedule a meeting with someone, you have to do it in the most cumbersome, annoying way. You have to ask them, when are you free? And if you're trying to coordinate a meeting with five people, that's a real hassle. If you're trying to say, can you do Monday at, uh, at 9? And yeah, I can do it. I can do it. Oh, I can't do that. It's just a dance that wears you down. And we want some of that. We want some of that organizational vinegar, that it should be a pain in the butt to schedule a meeting with a bunch of people, because then you will only do it when it really, really matters. So kicking off that calendar Tetris, avoiding the, um, the shared calendar is a key component of trying to constrain that. Because when you make something easy, you encourage it. And I think that's the fallacy often of a lot of technology, especially information technology, that promised us that everything would get better and it would get more efficient. And what ended up happening was it just got overused. Um, it reminds me of these studies on um, uh, traffic congestion where you see like, oh, some highway has four lanes and it's full. So you think, oh, if we just build another lane, then traffic will flow. No, traffic will just grow. The demand for transportation would simply just grow. And you can build a seven-line highway and you'll end up with one that's stuffed up in uh, traffic nonetheless. And the same thing happens at work. If you make it really easy to schedule meetings with other people, well, surprise, surprise, you'll end up with a bunch of meetings scheduled. And most of those will not be worth your time. And it happens not just with the meetings. Uh, another recent phenomenon is um, the advent of uh, real-time chat, Slack, and other tools like that, which is a bit ironic. At Basecamp, we actually had a, um, a tool like that that we launched 10 years ago in 2006 called Campfire. Um, that's a chat tool just like Slack. And over those 10 years, we learned just the dangers of what happens when you make it really easy to constantly hang around the virtual water cooler. And when you grow an expectation that employees should do that, that they should always have half an eye on this conveyor belt of information, where unless they're able to jump in at a second's notice, they might miss a conversation, they might miss an important decision. So you end up just being a split-brain, half-raffled person who's keeping half an eye on chat, half an eye on email, and then somewhere in there you're also supposed to do the work, it just doesn't happen. Um, work gets squeezed down, the actual work that you're supposed to accomplish gets squeezed down to this tiny little part of the day, and of course you think you're going to need more hours to make up for that, but no you don't. You just need to clear out the other crap that's filling your plate. The problem isn't that the plate is uh, it's not big enough, it's full of stuff that shouldn't be on there. So that's really uh, our focus here is that we try to embrace those constraints. The constraint is 40 hours. So if we can't get the work done we need to do in 40 hours, it's because we're doing work that we shouldn't try to get done. So let's try to cut some of that out and, uh, and push it off the plate. 
Great. I have a client who talking about this calendar Tetris thing who says, you know, so in her company, it's completely available. Anybody can grab your calendar for any time. And so people are constantly grabbing the calendar and she will be double and triple and quadruple booked for any given hour. And then, you know, backlogged on the real, the additional real work that she's supposed to do, having to do with some very deep reading and commentary and so on. So that, you know, makes sense. But there's no way to constrain it anymore because there's just this expectation that you will just keep doing and doing and doing and doing. So this notion that we start with 40 hours is the constraint. And if we can't get it done, then we have to cut out what's in the time so that we're doing what really matters. It's fabulous. David, it's radical. Absolutely, totally radical. With me today is David Heinemeyer Hansen. He's the creator of Ruby on Rails, as well as co-founder and CTO for Basecamp and a best-selling author. The book that we're talking about is It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. So when we come back, I want to talk about not why it's crazy and how crazy it is that we've made it that crazy, but more importantly, what we can do about it beyond just the meetings and the calendar. And especially, what do you do if you're just an employee in an average company where your CEO is not as enlightened as those at Basecamp? We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Welcome back to the show. With me today is David Heinemeyer Hansen. He's the creator of Ruby on Rails, I can't even say it, which is an open source web framework that is the background for any number of startup applications. He's also the co-founder and CTO at Basecamp. He's a best-selling author of multiple books, and he's a Le Mans class winning racing driver, among all the other things that he does in his life, like family and do podcast. And I should say the book we're talking about is It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, but there's also a book called Rework, and a book called Remote, about how to work remote. And I probably missed one in there, David, but there's a good bit in it. So you've reminded me of what I heard from a very senior executive at one of my financial services clients. This is a big, 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 large Fortune 100 company, actually Fortune 50 company. He's in a significantly major role, you know, in the top echelons. And his statement is, it's extro- it's extremely easy to come into work every day and be extraordinarily busy and work incredibly long hours and get nothing done. And David, it strikes me as that's what you're saying too, is that we have to guard against the just filling the day and get serious about what's the work we really need to do. Not the time, but the quality of the work. So let's turn to the question I'm sure on everybody's mind, how? How do I go about getting more focused on being less crazy, being calmer? Yes, uh, we've spent the better part of the last 20 years trying to figure that out and distill that into a set of principles and practices that we can hit play on. And then you have some systemic ways of protecting people's attention and their time. And I think sometimes if you are in a position of leadership, you can do that within your team. Even more fortunate if you're an executive and you can do that within your division or even within your company. But there also certainly are plenty of people who want to have less crazy at work and they don't have the power to to do that. And then the work turns more into a, a combination of being the change you want to see and then some measure of self-defense. When we talked about the calendar Tetris, for example, uh, one self-defense technique that I've heard from people who were forced to work in that regime where they do just have an open calendar is that they come up with phantom meetings that basically just involve themselves and their cat and an intention to do real work. So you block out time on your calendar to protect that time from being snatched by someone else. And that's one way of, of doing that self-defense. But I think even better than doing the self-defense is to, is to be the change that you want to see. Don't pull in other people into your uh, status meetings. Uh, don't constantly interrupt other people in real time by going over to them, by calling them, or by pinging them on chat when something could just be served in an email. I think there's an unfortunate addiction to ASAP in most companies where everything has to happen right now, even though the vast majority of things that we do can easily wait not only an hour, but a day or, or even a couple of days. And if you allow other people to control their own um, schedule because you're not placing demands on them to return to you ASAP, um, I think you have the power to, to sort of start an awareness that that's better, that here's a person who is respectful of other people's time because they want them to, be, um, uh, to have others respect their time. Um, one way we do this at Basecamp is at our office in Chicago, 
we're a remote company majority. We have 50 people and I think maybe 12 or 14 are in Chicago and, and some subset of that goes to the office every day. But at the office, we have library rules. So instead of uh, putting a premium on the office being this loud, bustling place where all this quote-unquote creativity is happening because you can hear everyone just yelling back and forth, we go the opposite route and say the default should be that work is for quiet, that when you sit uh, along the wall, you shouldn't be hearing people on the phone, you shouldn't be hearing having people have essentially meetings at the, at the desk next to you. No, you need to respect everyone in just the same way as you would um, respect someone reading at a library. A library is not a place for running around and screaming. A library is a place for study. Work should be prim- more, uh, primarily a place for study. Now, we also have at the office some team rooms that you can go into, and they're sort of basically sound booths. And, and then you can go in there and, and you can collaborate and, and whatever else have you. But the default should be library roles. Another part we try to uh, imp- sort of um, pose on people is this idea that we don't do vacation. When you go on a vacation at base camp, you should fully disconnect. If you're still checking in on your work email, if you're still available for that call here and there, you do not get that time to recharge. And I think that's perhaps a little more contentious of how much can you actually push that envelope. But I find that a lot of people don't even try. They don't even try to set any boundaries for their work. And I don't think that that's a healthy place to be. And and oftentimes it's an overreach. You get back what you um, uh, invite in. Uh, one anecdote on this was I was dealing with a, a situation with a, a lawyer in Copenhagen, Denmark. I'm from Denmark originally. I had some uh, family business that needed to be taken care of. And we were talking together on a Thursday. And we're talking about this work, and, and the lawyer was then saying, oh, actually, by the way, um, I have 10 minutes left. Then it's going to be 4 o'clock. And just uh, for your information, I'm taking Friday off. So if we can't wrap up in the next 10 minutes, then we'll have to um, take this case up again on, on Monday and talk about it. And I just went, wow, what a revelation that someone is setting boundaries for their work. Because I got the exact opposite experience dealing with a lawyer in New York just the week before. This was a new business engagement. I was speaking to this lawyer. And the first thing the lawyer said, unprompted entirely by anything I said, was, hey, I'm going to be in on vacation next week, but here's my private number. You can call me night and day. I always pick up. And this was a completely inconsequential real estate conversation. Why do I need to call you on Saturday at 10 p.m.? Well, because you just told me that that's kosher, that that's fine. No, it's not fine. We all need to set some boundaries for what's reasonable and what's uh, healthy. And it's not reasonable or healthy to always be on call when you're on vacation or to tell your clients that they can call you night or day. Uh, I actually find that uh, a lot of that is just based in an insecurity that, oh, the work we're doing is actually not good enough, that we have to compensate for it in all these ways. No, have some confidence in the quality of your work. And you'll find more often than not that people will respect you more for it, not less. Um, So those are just some of the techniques. I'd also say another technique that uh, I use is to take care of yourself. And for me, that starts with sleep, Um, especially in the U.S., um, 
working population has gotten less and less sleep over the last 30, 40 years to the point where I think uh, the stat was two-thirds of everyone is walking around with some amount of sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation has been studied in detail, and it's terrible. Not only is it terrible for your health, it's terrible for your creativity, it's terrible for your um, compassion, it's terrible for your patience, all these qualities that we really want people to have when we're, we're working with them, they all just get whacked when people don't get enough sleep. Um, and enough sleep, uh, some people have convinced themselves, oh, I only need six hours of sleep. I'm actually okay. And then they can take a nap at any time and they need to gulp down uh, five Starbucks uh, coffees a day to just make it through to the end. That's not enough sleep. That's a severely sleep-deprived person speaking in delusion. Most people need eight, eight and a half hours of sleep every night. And unless they get that, um, they really can't show up to work with that uh, bigger picture, that um, patience and that creativity that ultimately gives satisfaction in the work. Which is the other thing we talked about with you can work a whole day, seem like you're busy, and then look up from your desk at the end of the day and think, what did I actually get done? But that's just a profoundly unsatisfying way of working. Whenever I talk to people, and it doesn't matter whether they're individual contributors or they're managers, the sense of satisfaction from work comes from doing a sound day's work where you really feel like you accomplished something. And all this shallow work where you're running around crazy all day and then can't even remember what got done at the end of the day, it's just the complete opposite of that. And I think leads to a fundamental insecurity and despair about the work that then gets into this whole cycle of trying to compensate for it by pouring in more hours and then you're into a bad cycle that ends up eating your sleep uh, amongst other things and uh, and you can't do it. So taking care of yourself first, um, I think, is, is absolutely key. And that's something everyone can strive to do. That makes a lot of sense. I love this notion about the, the idea that the dissatisfaction at work, and we might substitute in the lack of engagement at work, and the disillusion with where my career is going, is because I'm not feeling like I can see what I've accomplished at the end of the day. I've been running around like crazy and I don't know what I've actually done that's of value. I think that's a huge one. I have another one to say, too, about your lawyer story and about setting boundaries. So one of my clients, the senior, some senior executives there, you know, when you're dealing with a client-facing, uh, when you're client-facing side of an organization, you want to be responsive for the client. You want to give them really, really good advice. You want to be available. You want that client to feel like you are the, they're the most important person to you. And so the tendency is to overpromise what you are going to deliver. As in, I'll get back to you in an hour with the answer to that question. When frequently the clients don't care, 24 hours, 48 hours would be perfectly fine. Monday morning might be okay. I just need to know you're coming back to me with a good answer. And we push ourselves to do stuff that's not necessarily really even needed, just like your lawyer example So as well. Um, I want to talk about goals for a minute. You have this notion that goals are a bad idea, and I want to hear your view. Why do you say that? I think goals in the specific sense that it's usually used in business is a bad idea. And those goals are a bad idea because they're often framed around these sort of short-term sprints that turn into forever sprints. You have quarterly goals, and you may meet those goals. And then you take, what, 10 minutes to celebrate that you met those goals, and then another batch of goals just come down 
on top of you. And then you have another sort of hamster wheel running for, uh, to meet those goals. And that just continues. There's four quarters to a year, and there's uh, 40 quarters to a decade. And if you are on the treadmill of quarterly goals, where you constantly have to strive and exceed and hopefully, uh, in, in some businesses' minds, uh, continue to push this exponential growth story, um, you're constantly going to be running around out of breath. And I think that not only is that uh, just a uh, anxious stressful way of working, I don't even think it's a good way of working. If you look at um, many of the, the companies that's come up with breakthrough products um, and, and, and sort of done things that changed things, they weren't just because they tried to squeeze out another 12% quarter. They were because they took a step back and looked at a bigger picture and said, like, what are we really trying to do here? How can we look at things differently? Not just about meeting some, as it usually is, financial targets. So what we've done at Basecamp is to say, we don't have any short-term goals. There's no quarterly goals at Basecamp. There's a general goal that we want a sustainable business that has just enough growth that we can keep going. And in fact, um, while that might have been even more so in the early days where we were trying to sort of somewhat grow the company, now we've reached the size of about 50 people. Um, and that's where we took our most drastic step yet. Uh, about two years ago, we celebrated the single largest year for Basecamp, our main product, most revenue ever. And our celebration of that was to say, that's enough. We don't need to strive for anything more than that. In fact, we're going to put a hiring freeze in place and say, we want to be of around 50 people, give and take, and we will give up business to be able to do that. That if we wanted to be twice as large as we were in terms of revenue or three times as large as we were in terms of revenue, we'd also probably have to be at least two times the size of, of an organization, and we didn't want to be that. And having sort of that um, freedom to say when you've had enough is exceptionally liberating. And what we focus on instead is these sort of long-term, more fuzzy goals. We want to make great products. We want to provide a workplace where employees can do the best work of their lives in a calm, measured manner where they're not running around crazy, and we have the retention rates to back that up. Um, I think the average um, um, tenure at Basecamp is over five years. Uh, in the tech industry, the average is 18 months. Um, and, and we've only been around as a, a product company for, for five years. So that seems to be resonating. Same as uh, just being fair in our dealings with customers, not try to squeeze everything out. I think the sad loop you can get into when you're constantly chasing quarterly goals is that you have to squeeze everything dry. You have to eke out every last drop of performance, every last drop of profitability, and nothing tastes good when it's squeezed to its last drop. Those last drops are usually pretty damn sour. And we didn't want that sourness. Why do we need that sourness? Why do we need to squeeze everything to its last drop? Um, I think having some slack in the business and having some um, air to breathe and to think is worth far more than, oh, we could get another percentage point squeezed out this quarter if we just uh, whip everyone a little harder. So goals is really a, a big no-go at, uh, at Basecamp, and, and we try to just focus on, on values more so than, uh, than goals. Love it. All right. Now, you want, I would just kind of a couple things in your book that I think are fascinating. So you say... You have anything to say about low-hanging fruit, as in it's not? 
<laughs> yes. This was one of those things we had to learn the, the hard way around. For example, um, at Basecamp, we haven't done a lot of uh, sales or marketing pretty much ever. Um, we've grown our company organically, mainly through word of mouth, and Jason and I writing books and speaking at conferences and so on. And we somehow lulled ourselves into believing that just because we'd never done this, clearly there would be a ton of low-hanging fruit. That if we just hired someone in, they could, um, they could just pick that off because it would be hanging right in front of it. Well, that's really just betraying an ignorance of the work. Um, everyone else's job always looks easy. It's never your own. And you should have a little bit more respect for the fact that nobody's job is easy. If you want to do anything well, it's hard to do. And whether you've done it before or not, um, if anything, should just give you more pause. If you have not spent a lot of time on traditional marketing challenges as, as we hadn't, why would you assume that that's easy? So stop thinking about sort of these things you have to do as though they're just low-hanging fruit because they have a tendency to lull you into believing that things are much easier than, than they actually are and that other people's jobs are, are the ones that are easiest of all. Okay. I like that one that, you know, just don't think about this as, oh, well, somebody else is going to do it. It must be easy. It's so easy to underestimate what it takes someone else to do the job. I think that's a fabulous idea. Okay. Now you have this other idea about needing to say yes to everyone or to please. Boy, a lot of people fall in that category. What's your advice there? And how does that play in? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the stable really is the customer is always right, right? Or we have to be a customer-focused organization. I think uh, Amazon and uh, Bezos in particular have uh, um, sort of been on that line. And and I say, no, if you place any particular stakeholder on a pedestal above all else and as the single focus, you're going to end up in a bad situation. We just talked about uh, shareholder value in, in the intro. And it's the same thing. If the only thing you care about is shareholder value, you end up with organizations like Valiant that raises the price of uh, pharmaceutical medication uh, hundreds of thousands of percent just because they can. You need to look at business as a whole system that is comprised of many parts. It's comprised of the owners, of the shareholders, of the employees, and the customers. And you don't do right by any of them by saying, oh, these other people are not important. Um, and I think that this focus on, on customer focus above all else has that unfortunate tendency to, to lead it. It doesn't matter what the price is for the employees that are working on these jobs. And just as you say, employees can end up promising that they can get back to you in an hour when actually the customer didn't really care. And, and they might have been just as fine getting an answer that was thorough and creative two days later. But because we are this customer-focused organization, we keep thinking that um, there's no way uh, or there's no bridge too far, that there's no bending backwards that's not far enough. And I think that's just fundamentally unhealthy. And we've tried to square that at Basecamp by saying, do you know what? They're all healthy. There isn't an easy answer here. We can't just say, oh, it's all about stakeholders or it's all about customers. Um, we have to, if we don't treat employees right and if we don't provide a calm work environment, who is it that's going to treat these customers so right? How can you even treat the customers right if you're not thinking about how to take care of your employees? Um, so I think it's just sometimes these um, uh, quips of just saying the customer is always right. It's just uh, a reflection of shallow thinking because you're not willing to do the actual hard work of training these concessions off and, and weighing multiple competing interests at the same time 
that is the work of business, of weighing those competing interests at the same time and coming up with a good compromise that's doing right by all parties. We're seeing um, increasingly, as we talk about brands, that customers are starting to say, I value brands that add something to my life, and I'm happy to be uh, associated with this brand. But one of the qualities of that is whether the company treats their employees right. So we're starting to see that come in even as customers are evaluating whether this is a brand I want to be associated with or not. I think that's fabulous. All right, Jason, you've got two minutes till we close any last advice on how I can inflict calm on myself? Um, I pull out one other essay from the book, which is the notion of the trust battery, which really has been a profound uh, metaphor for us at Basecamp. And the trust battery is to think of your relations within a company with other people that you're working with as having a trust battery, just like your mobile phone has a battery. And if you run it all the way down, uh, it turns red and things get harder to do. Usually your phone slows down when it's on the last drops of juice and your personal relationships will falter too if they're on their last drops of juice. That in this uh, approach of getting the most efficient workplace, we sometimes think, oh, it's just business. We just have to um, be professional. These are some of the things that we say when we're trying to cover up reasons for why we're short or even outright assholes to other people. And I think that that's basically just not only bad business, it's bad, bad morality and it's bad human relationships. Think of how can we build the trust battery? How can we um, not be unreasonable in our demands of other people, not be unreasonable in our... Uh, demands of their time or in how ASAP some of the uh, needless requests we sometimes put in of others are and how can we treat others in in much the same way as both we want to be treated but also how they want to be treated. Uh, I think that was one of the lessons that I took away uh, some years into my career. There wasn't enough to think just how do I want to be treated because people are different and to have some empathy and insight into what makes other people click and, uh, and treat them how they want to be. And try to get your trust battery uh, up in the, uh, in the high to 100% with, uh, with That's everyone. Great. David, thank you. Fabulous. There's, I'm sure we could talk on for another hour. My day, guest today, David Heinemeyer Hansen. The book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And I think without a doubt, we can all take away ways in which we can make it calmer and aspire for calmness as opposed to for craziness. David, thank you for joining us and join us next week for more wisdom on getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.